Welcome back, everyone, to the Network Age. I am Bitchel Ritson here, as always, with my incredibly handsome co-hosts, Nilrun Mardux and Hapsel Rigner. Boys, how are you doing today? Hey, doing really well. Well, thank you. Yes, yes, we're all doing well. We're doing incredibly well because soon we are going to be joined by Chase Van Etten, the CEO and co-founder of Vaporware, which is one of the most exciting projects uh, both on Urbit and beyond. And I, I really think he's going to present a, a cool new model of thinking about software for us. So I, I can't wait for him to join us. Yeah, I'm really excited. I think, um, especially just kind of talking through this this book that's sort of on this whole topic of the nature of technology. You know, we've been running in a technology podcast for a really long time, and I feel like we haven't, at times, we haven't stepped back to just think like, all right, you know, what is the current, what is Web2 benefiting from? If we really want to displace this, and if we really want to look into the future, what are the themes within technology that will kind of guide that future. So I'm really excited to hear Chase's opinions on that. And yeah, just learn more about Vaporware and what they're doing. Yeah, I'm pretty excited to hear about how they're going to use NFTs to distribute software and get like uh, get dis- get developers paid using NFTs and the possibility of remixing software outside of centralized um, software development houses. And also, you know, I, I expect that everyone will pay homage to my amazing vaporware developed Tharsis video game skills. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, big victory. So we're going to get into all that, plus uh, the nature of technology by Brian Arthur and some, some of his ideas, as well as some interesting visions for what software is going to look like in uh, the next half century. So stick with us and we'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to the Network Age. And now we are joined by Chase Van Etten, the co-founder of Vaporware, uh, also known as Harden Hardis on Urbit. Chase, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. I've... uh... I've got to say, I'm a little bit nervous. I'm a Network Age super fan. Uh, <laughs> yes. I, I was I was here it? before the I was here before the rebranding. I don't know how many people will will remember that back in it, the the Web Zero days. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The uh, the distant past. Uh, well, thank you for uh, for for being a, a listener first. I imagine that's more important even than your your role at Vaporware. That's right. But, um, we're glad we're glad to get you on the show, and we're we have a lot to talk about with Vaporware and. You know, I saw you speak at Reassembly, and you guys are working on a, on a ton of really interesting, cool stuff that I think could be really transformational in, in software distribution and, and monetization and all that. But before we get into the nitty gritty of your business and, and the dollars and cents, I think we really wanted to ground this discussion by examining um, a book that has influenced your thinking that you shared with us. This is the the nature of technology by W. Brian Arthur, and I was wondering if you could give us a quick overview of why this book got your attention, how it has influenced your your thinking. Yeah, um, Brian Brian Arthur is uh, he's he's a known entity in the technology space. Um, his his better known work is around the study of uh, increasing returns, which today we call network effects. Um, this was sort of his, his marquee paper that came out, I think in the, the eighties, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and basically detailed, he detailed in that paper the, the kinds of effects we need now see playing out for companies like Facebook and Google. Um, and actually, if you, if you go back and you look at some of the writings in particular from uh, Yahoo back in the 90s, they, uh, they credited this theory of increasing returns of network effects that Brian Arthur had, had pioneered as the, the reason for launching Java. Um, or excuse me, not not Yahoo, uh, Sun Micro, uh, Sun Microsystems. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they credit Brian Arthur for for sort of like the impetus behind launching Java, behind spending hundreds of millions of dollars on uh, like acquiring this this like programming language network effect. Um, so that that's what he's best known for. the The book or the work that I think is actually more interesting today is uh, the second. The second big study that he did, which was around the nature of technology itself, like as a as a sort of evolutionary system, as a as a complex system, uh, he basically wanted to understand how that system functioned, what the constituent parts were, um, how it evolved over time, what kind of uh, external uh, effects were impinging any given direction of technology evolution. Uh, and, and so this, this book basically was a catalog of um, a general theory proposing how, how these sorts of systems uh, come to be and, and evolve. Um, and I think that the opportunity for projects like Urbit, decentralization projects more generally, blockchain more generally, is to understand this kind of effect that he is describing, the, the sort of... Um, systemic level effects that can trigger sort of major changes in in um, the technology landscape and and uh, basically taking advantage of this effect to to do something that um, web 2 uh, companies haven't been able to do so I, I find it very influential I think that you know what he's done is to categorize the theory to explicate sort of like the the different um, pieces of it and then what I think our job is to do is to recognize how we can um, kind of build some of these um, build some of these effects into the into the like systems that we're we're engineering. Hmm. Yeah, and and you mentioned to me this feeling that we needed to study technology almost in the same way that we studied biological organisms, right? That we need to look at the evolution of technology and have a grasp of how it actually works in order to gain like a competitive advantage on a like development and business level with respect to software. So what are these, uh, you know, inherent qualities of technology and its evolution that Arthur identified or that you feel are the like the next network effect, the thing that has to be understood and built into uh, these new systems that we're working on? Yeah, I mean, Arthur Arthur identified a few different pieces, a few different like fundamental pieces to technology, um, and I we can we can talk about what those are specifically and, and how I think we can take advantage of it. I, I think the the recognition, um, like the the high level goal here, right, is that Web two first consciously and then on unconsciously as the the like network effect business model just became clear piggybacked off of the like theoretical understanding that Brian and his, his colleagues at Santa, uh, the Santa Fe Institute had, had put together 
and uh, they effectively like engineered these these businesses, right? If we view Facebook, the technology, not just as the software that you interact with, but as all of the the software mechanisms occurring behind the scenes as well, they like engineered these businesses to very explicitly take advantage of this fact of nature called increasing returns. And uh, that was an incredibly powerful strategy for them. Like that, that is one of the key insights that led to their explosive growth in the last 20 years. Um, if a project like Urbit or, you know, sort of these uh, efforts to decentralize consumer technology more broadly are going to compete against that kind of entity, we have to be taking, we have to engineer into our own systems some fact about nature, some uh, way that the world is that is actually more competitive, that leads to, to better software, more competitive uh, business models than, than what Web2 has already done with, uh, with increasing returns. So the book basically, I think, describes such a, such a fact of nature. And I think that is like increasing re returns could sort of like be engineered into a system. I think that the, um, the facts that he describes in the nature of technology can be engineered into a system and taken advantage of to basically produce software at a faster pace for cheaper uh, and with sort of better results for the, for the end consumer. And what, what is that fact? about it. Like I, un I understand the network effect, but what what are you speaking about specifically there? Yeah, so uh technologies are are basically th there's three facts about technologies according to to Brian Arthur. Hmm. So first all all technologies are combinations. They are combined from other components, they're assembled from uh subsystems uh which are themselves made up of subsystems. Um, the, the second is that these, so, so they're recursive to be clear. Um, uh, mm. the second is that each of these, uh, individual components, these, these subsystems that make up the larger piece of whatever the technology is, are themselves pieces of technology. Um, and then, and the, the third is that, uh, every piece of technology captures some natural phenomena at like, uh, it's a system designed to take advantage of some fact about the world. So at a very simple, you know, take, take a relatively simple example, a paperweight takes advantage of the fact that uh, some kinds of objects are heavy and that paper is relatively light and you can uh, build an object that can keep a piece of paper, um, you know, stable on a table despite wind or what whatever else going on. Yeah. But this is true of much more complex pieces of technology too, like an internal combustion engine. There are facts about the way that gasoline and other um, fuels explode, and we've built a machine to take advantage to capture that phenomena. Um, so this is true of computing systems as well. Um, like this, the to bring this back to the like existing web two technology companies, they have built these engineering, uh, they have built these like computing systems that we call technology companies, partly to capture the effect of increasing returns. Like their, their software is designed in such a way uh, with that fact in mind. And uh, they have built into the product itself things to take advantage of that fact. Um, 
They seem so that, to have also like, taken advantage of another fact of sort of nature, which is humans prefer to like see things without thinking. Hence, like timelines, sort of infinite content that doesn't oh, require absolute, any like yes, mental gymnastics. Yes. Yeah, there's absolute. I mean, these things are the the most complex structures that we've ever made, and they they're taking advantage of many different phenomena. But I think the sort of like large contributor to the business success that they're finding is this like increasing return dynamic. Um, and so my, my argument, like basically what I think vaporware, uh, like what vaporware is trying to do is we are trying to, uh, we think that it's possible to build a system that captures the, the nature of technology itself. So Brian Wright is describing a, a fact about the world in this paper, that this is the way that technology systems are constructed, that these are like this component, this, like the fact that they're sort of like recursive components, that each component is itself technology and that they capture some specific phenomena, like that is a fact about the world. And we think that it's possible to build an engineering, to, to engineer a system that captures that phenomena. Right, and, and the one thing I found really interesting about his book was this idea of kind of not just evolution in a sort of biological Darwin type sense, but also um, a discovery of a new component that unlocks a whole new set of technologies. So like one, one big technological discovery unlocks another set. For example, you know, the steam engine is one of the most classic examples of that that unlocked a whole field of technologies around the steam engine. Um, and, and this idea of like one technology being built on another, I'm curious what you think perhaps are, are some of the technologies that have been created since web two that unlock, you know, potential for entire classes of technology. One that kind of jumps out because we had him on, you know, Logan from Zorp and like ZKs, um, as sort of like a new, a new technology that also potentially unlocks a class of technology. So I wanted to hear your thoughts around that. Yeah, I, I think that like zero knowledge uh, proof technology is definitely interesting. Uh, I, I haven't seen, I just haven't seen it used commercially to, to much success yet. Um, so I'm, I'm less clear about where it's going to be meaningful. Like today, today, Basically, the only place that I see it um, deployed at a wide scale is, and wide is sort of you know uh, proportional to the market, but it's, <laughs> it's like used in in blockchain technology effectively. Like that's the only place that it's really being used. I think what's interesting about Zorp is that um, we've got this model of computation in Urbit called NOC, which is it's effectively just like a like an enriched Lambda calculus, like it's a very minimal instruction set. Um, and because of the way that it's been designed, it, it turns out to be a very uh, natural target for uh, ZKPs. And so what Logan and Zorp are building is like a general zero, zero knowledge prover. Like you can, you can provide zero knowledge proofs for not just blockchain computation, but general computation. And, and that, that's like a new thing in the world. Um, so what, I mean, to, to come back to the, the idea of like technology is a like a recursive evolutionary process. What Logan and Zorp are building is only possible because this thing called NOC exists and NOC exists only because this thing called Lambda calculus exists. Uh, 
And, you know, you, you can kind of go down the stack that way. So I, I do think that it's interesting. I think that ZKP uh, technology will unlock a bunch of use cases. I actually think that it's not clear how useful it's going to be yet. Um, but I think that the promise is there. Mm -hmm. And so if, if this is the fundamental fact that you're interested in about technology, it's, it's sort of natural description, this recursive um, self-built, uh, as it as it says in the book, auto-paietic, I believe I'm yeah. pronouncing this, self-creating yep. structure. Poetic. Poetic? Poetic. 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 Auto-poetic. I'm pronouncing that perfectly, and I yeah, resent this. Beautiful. Thank you. Uh, um, is Am I correct in saying that the way that this has manifested for 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 you and your conceptualization of of vaporware is in the importance of free and open source software FOSS because I know you talked about this yeah assembly and like a big part of your thesis is that free and open source software is not only like it's not just an ideological thing like this is good inherently it actually is the most efficient effective way to deliver um, robust, powerful, light on its feet software to consumers. Yeah, I mean, in in many ways, my interest in this is like purely selfish. Um, <laughs> like, I I do I I am very amenable to the sort of like ethical claims that the FOSS um, movement has been making for for decades now. It's it's not that I'm not interested in that that piece of it. Um, I think it's just a less powerful argument. The, the, the more powerful argument is just like, okay, if, if you buy what Brian Arthur is pitching, which is that technology is constructed in this fashion, that there's components, they're recursive, that the individual components are, are pieces of technology, uh, that they're sort of winnowed, like good, good versions and bad versions are winnowed out via exposure to, to market dynamics, like all, all this stuff that he writes about. Um, then what you want in a software development ecosystem is to like basically design the incentives and the mechanisms of distribution of software such that it it like matches that natural state as closely as possible. Ba basically, the fewer uh, the the less friction that you have in combining and recombining and forking and um, you know, someone someone invents a piece of software that captures some some fact about the world. Oh, people want to have a friends list, say. Like people want to keep track of their connections. That is as a fact about the the human species. You invent a piece of software that does that. That should be freely. That should be um, composable with other things, right? Like that. That is what Brian Arthur's theory basically says. That if you want sort of maximally efficient invention of new software, of new technology. Uh, it should be freely composable. Uh, and the problem with FOSS in, in the, the past has really been that you can do this, like you can do this with Linux and other systems right now, but they're not monetizable. Uh, and because they're not monetizable, they're not exposed to this like winnowing uh, market effect that is actually required to like land on competitive, useful uh, technologies. There's um, something I want to return to really quickly um, in this discussion, uh, back to the Arthur book, 
which is that, or something that we haven't discussed fully, which is that um, one of the things that he says about um, the progress of technology is not that it's a straightforward Darwinian evolution of t- of technology, but there's this this other component that's sort of like in 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 this arena of um, technolo- technological development, we have certain technologies that don't arise directly from the technology that came before them. So as like I said, not straightforwardly Darwinian. An example he gives is the combustion engine to the jet engine, right? That these technologies are actually so seemingly unrelated fundamentally, I mean, physically, but that, that uh, as you said, in this arena of technology, they, they, f- they found some effect that can be applied to the technology that came before and then you have this whole new field of technology that exists yeah. after after, and that's I I just sort of want to highlight why we keep talking about effects that we're search, like you know searching for for specific effects like whether it's network effect or uh, what was the other one that you were just talking a composability for instance like technological composability these things like that. Yep, that's exactly right. I I think often what happens is sort of an, an un- unlock is made with respect to a specific use case. And then people realize that you can kind of, right, like this is the this is the argument that's sometimes made in Urbit actually is, are you trying to like, when you're, when you're building something, should you be trying to build a generalized solution or should you be building software that like addresses a specific problem that, um, that you have in mind? And I think the way that this tends to play out is that people discover some new category of thing that is generally useful, but they do so while trying to solve a specific problem. So, you know, the internal combustion engine was invented within a specific setting, but I think that that like conceptual unlock um, meant that that similar, that a similar strategy sort of like looking for a set of composable technologies, but applying it to to planes and jet engines and packaging, like effectively refactoring it into a new, um, into a new uh, version of what had come before was like that. That's kind of that plays out repeatedly. Right. The, um, the idea of let's go faster was was in the air. Yeah, let's go faster <laughs> by like building building like a brick of metal that can contain millions of tiny explosions right um yeah yeah it's quite fascinating i mean i've been curious about you know web 2 obviously is benefiting from network effects it's really well entrenched but like you could say for older technologies um you know like the carriage right it had network effects everything was kind of built around we have horses and buggies but it can still be disrupted by a new technology like the internal combustion engine um in remarkably short order. And so I'm curious if you see, Chase, any sort of like effect today, any technology, maybe maybe it's, for example, blockchains that Web2 can't copy, um, that are just, that are, you know, 10x better and not able to be incorporated into a business model like Facebook's that, you know, might potentially switch this even into, even additionally to the whole FOSS movement. If there's sort of areas where the entrenched players won't be able to, won't be able to kind of utilize these new technologies that are developing. Yeah, I think I think um, a lot of this comes down to almost like a more basic level of abstraction for these companies, which is like the corporate structure itself and and all the the legal 
um, and regulatory requirements that, that mm. come along with that. Like that, that itself is a piece of technology and it's been a very sticky piece of technology. Um, but like one of, one of the things that I think is interesting about uh, the model of software distribution that exists on Urbit um, and my, so Vaporware is building, building our stack um, on top of uh, Urbit. So I'm going to be talking about this quite a bit, but the, the interesting thing about the Urbit model, right, is that each individual user is effectively responsible for their own cloud computer. Um, like they, they own it in a very meaningful way. Like it's a piece of property that uh, they own. And at scale, we think that the way that this is going to work is that there will be sort of a, a soup of hosting providers who uh, will provide like compute resources to these individual consumers so that they can run their, their Urbit node in the cloud um, when or if they need to. And this is, this is a very different way of structuring sort of the, the distribution of consumer software than what these existing companies do. And I think that, right, one of the things that this gives us is a layer of abstraction between the person who wrote the software, the developers who wrote the software, the company responsible for hosting the node on which that software is running, and the party that is reasonably liable for uh, operating that software, the end consumer. Uh, and, and this is like creating these new layers of abstraction between all these three, between these three uh, primary stakeholders is like a massive unlock. It's a massive unlock because there's lots of things that's legal for an individual person to do or for individual people to do with each other that is either illegal or where the regulatory requirements are, are so so high that a centralized company can't offer that software themselves. Um, so that that is like one of the areas where I think Web2 just is not going to be able to outcompete us. It's like these decentralized platforms are going to be able to launch software that is functionally illegal for a centralized company to launch. Um, and we'll be able to do it without incurring a bunch of the regulatory risk that that these large companies would incur if they tried to do it. Yeah, we saw that recently, actually today in a Uniswap court ruling where the judge basically said, like, look, there's a distinction between a, an interface like the Uniswap client and the protocol behind it. They're not the same thing. And Uniswap can't be, as a company, can't be considered liable for things, um, for like people using its protocol in bad ways, for how, for third-party misuse of a protocol, um, which I, th I thought was really fascinating, really supports kind of your point that there's something fundamentally distinct here where Web2 companies are going to have trouble following. Yeah, I think there's just like a very broad category of soft. I mean, even so, I, I was talking to Morgan uh, Beller, who was at Facebook work, working on Libra. I think she was like heading up this um, this effort. And like Libra is just a very clear example of a Web2 company trying to do something that, you know, in a purely decentralized system is okay. But because they were a massive organization, uh, they incurred a, a just like huge regulatory liability and, and couldn't move forward with it. So I think there's like a broad landscape of software that's going to look like that, that highly centralized, large Web2 companies will be uh, incapable of building. Hmm. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. Let's let's talk a little bit more about about vaporware. I'm just curious. You had this saying earlier, you know, that FOSS is really important, but the first letter of that is free. Um, and so when we're talking about incentivizing free open source software, like how, how do we do that in a way that doesn't break the spirit of FOSS? Yeah, I mean, free, uh, I think Stallman, Stallman was a fan of saying this, but free, it's, it's free as in speech, not as in beer. Um, and, <laughs> and that means that it's, it's absolutely fine. It is completely within the spirit of free and open source software to charge money for it. Like there is no problem with that. Uh, you just need to <clears throat> respect the, the, other, the other rights that come along with it. And the other rights in, in my mind basically boil down to this idea of supporting composability and, and extension of existing software. And you know, the processes that a individual would need to go through in order to be able to do that. Like looking at the code, reading the code, learning from the code modifying the code for their own use or the, the use of their friends and family. Um, so the, the issue with this is that there's like, there's no real distribution channel for, um, for this, this model of open source software. And there's no distribution channel that supports monetizing open source software while keeping, uh, while keeping this like basic right in place. So, Right, vaporware. Vaporware is trying to basically build a a system that combines the benefits of uh, open source software development without losing the sort of like clear financial incentives that, say, SaaS has. Um, and we're doing this by combining Urbit, which, which has this peer-to-peer -peer open source software distribution model built into it, and NFTs as a monetization mechanism, which are permissionless, um, very composable and already sort of baked into the urban system. Um, so happy to talk about like the details there more, but that's sort of like the way that we're approaching it is we, we think you need both this permissionless monetization layer and this like permissionless software distribution layer. And in this system, correct me if I'm wrong, the NFTs work more or less as a sort of software license, right? It's this on-chain way to track who owns um, the ability to run this, run the software. Yep. That's right. It's, uh, it's part license, part like accounting mechanism. And then NFTs are cool because you also get all of these like free monetization, uh, tools bundled in with this. So it's like, it's like monetized identity primitives effectively. Um, people already kind of think about NFTs as a component of identity. And so we're extending that by saying, well, you know, a component of your identity is what software you're, you're permissioned to run. Um, so what we've effectively done is we've sort of namespaced an Urbit node, uh, which is a computer that an individual owns and operates. Uh, and we've said this little part of the computer is associated with this NFT. And if someone comes along and buys this NFT, then they get whatever software, uh, or code or state is, uh, sort of contained within this, this smaller section of the computer. Um, and that, that is done permissionlessly. Like this is, this is just via protocol running on top of Urbit. Um, and then essentially the white labeling particular planets or stars, yeah. any Urbit, uh, like white, white labeling, like portions of them, right? Mm -hmm. Like we've, we've taken Tlon's model of, okay, we have a computer and we can sell access to, to this computer, to this network via an NFT. And we've generalized it to any, 
any slice of one of these nodes. So it's it's not net new. Like I actually think that Plon is basically executed on what we're doing, but we're we're just trying to generalize it to a further degree. How do you get around the fact that with Urbit, I can download an app from like any ship that's already downloaded it? How do you how do you actually make sure that the developer gets paid? And that I can't just pirate software. Oh, we, we're happy that you can pirate software. I think at the limit, pirating software is a good thing. That's um, good because I, you... I hate paying for software. Just... <laughs> well, I think, so the the answer is, it's not such a big deal right now when there's like 100 developers on Urbit and there's not that much software. And when you're downloading a piece of software, you actually like have hung out with the guy that's building it. Hmm. Um, but in a world where there's, 10,000 applications, um, you're, you're going to want some organizing force behind that, some sort, sort of like curatorial force behind that. Uh, and so that, that is one avenue to basically start enforcing like social contracts, right? Like you're, you can't do this stuff programmatically on chain. We're not interested in like building DRM software. Um, but there are, sort of social layer incentives and disincentives that can be baked in. And the reason why NFTs are nice is because it's, it's like a canonical representation of identity uh, of like a, a part of your identity. And you can, you can build your software to like make use of that. You, you can build like software that enforces these, these like social contracts and, and use the NFT as a way to enforce that. Yeah. I think there's also an interesting angle because I've, I've thought about it before, right. With like, you know, software today is can be very easily pirated, right? If I want to get Microsoft Excel, it's not that hard. But then if you're working for a company, the company obviously can't just like go to Pirate Bay, get Microsoft Excel for all thousand or whatever for all their employees because they get sued, right? <laughs> they, yep. you know, there there's corporate kind of compliance built in that prevents um, pirating for businesses. Obviously, it's still done at the individual level. So I'm kind of curious how you how do you see this future playing out, especially if if crypto destroys the corporate structure that we talked about a little bit earlier. Are there is it just going to be social social mechanisms, or are there going to be other mechanisms that can kind of they can provide incentivization at scale when we have this open software? I I think that a lot of what we're doing with sticks right now can be done with carrots in a in a better way. Um, if you look at if you look at like the IP regime in the US today, it is almost entirely stick oriented. It's like you you can't you can't do this thing without getting permission from this person and this person and this person. And if you do try to do it, uh, you're gonna get sued. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like that like coming back to Brian Arthur, like that basically adds a bunch of friction to the ability for individual people or groups of people to recompose these these basic building blocks of uh, new technology, right? Like all technology that exists today could could become a component of some future system. And any friction in trying experiments of composing and modifying these things means that the development of, of technology is just slower than it otherwise would be. So the, the disincentive is like quite a large barrier here, actually. Um, and so, you know, what's a, what's a different path here? Well, let's say, let's take an example. Let's say, uh, I'm a developer and I write a little social, uh, networking app that just keeps track of my friends and I can put some, some metadata against their name 
remember, you know, maybe what their real name is, maybe where they live, maybe how we initially met. And if people like that, um, then there might be other developers that want to build on top of it. Ideally, what we want, right, is that if I build a useful piece of software, other developers can come and, and extend that that usefulness without coming to me and asking for permission still. Mm-hmm. Um, like that, that is sort of like the, the minimal friction version of, uh, of comp- composition. The, the issue and why I think IP exists as it does today is that you actually do want some financial incentive for that original developer to have developed the software in the first place. Like if they are just going to get their software stolen and forked and resold, especially if the, the software is like hard to build, the incentive is not really there. Um, so with NFTs and Urbit, you can kind of, you can build up like a dependency graph basically on chain, and then you can do automatic payment streaming when one of these extensions is sold back into the original developer. Um, so I make a friends list. The friends list is very useful. Someone wants to integrate it into their chat app. If that chat app is monetized, what Vaporware is trying to build here is a system that will auto- automatically uh, stream like royalties effectively back to that original developer. Yeah, really interesting. Who who sets prices in this model? I mean, one very simple way is just to let each developer set their own price. But to say that the person buying, you know, the, whatever software is at the end of that chain, at the end of that like branch, they have to pay for the, the bundled cost of all the dependencies. So each dependency manager would set their own price and then the user has to pay the, the, the total for it. Mm. Um, and that, that means that as a dependency manager, you're incentivized to pick a price that is not going to be so absurd that your dependency won't be included in popular software. Yeah, yeah, I follow. It's almost like the value-added tax approach, where like each step that is that adds value as you're building a product and shipping a product and getting it to the consumer, um, that portion is taxed. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, yeah, I'm kind of I'm curious. Like, can you go in deeper into just how the NFT is integral to that? Yeah. So we we have software running on Urbit. Uh, when the when the protocol when the vaporware protocol is live, uh, this will be running on the ship of anyone interacting with uh, interacting with the software. And when a say software developer wants to sell a piece of software uh, via this protocol, they upload it to their their Urbit. This could be just front end software. It could be a combination of front end and back end. Could even just be content, right? Like we. We support content in just like kind of pure state. Um, and then you you associate that content, that code, whatever that little slice of your Urbit is that that you've uh, put together with a with an NFT on Ethereum. Uh, and so this is this is bound uh, basically via a bridge that already existed in the Urbit ecosystem called ETHWatcher, bridges Urbit state to Ethereum state. Um, it's, it's a one-way bridge. It's Ethereum into Urbit, basically. Um, and we've modified that to, to be a little bit more general and performant. Um, and so what happens when a new user comes, They let's assume they have an Urbit for the moment. Uh, they buy this NFT. Uh, the creator who has made the software and set up the, the NFT contract for minting, their Urbit sees that a transaction has occurred, that one of these NFTs has been purchased. Uh, and then... The vaporware protocol 
uh, does some like identity checking, some verification about which ship the, the software or the, the code should be sent to, and then automatically transfers it over. Um, and so, you know, we were basically going to like hash the software and, and put that on the token itself. So, so there's like a little bit of complexity here to make sure that like as the buyer, you can be sure you're getting the thing that you, you thought you were getting. Um, there's also like some social dynamics here around curation that, that enter the picture, but that that's like the core piece of it. So we're associating a slice of an Urbit with an NFT. And then we have a protocol that basically replicates, uh, replicates that state, that code, uh, as NFTs are, are traded back and forth. And, uh, you have begun testing this with Vapor's first publicly available project, right? This is Tharsis, uh, uh, a new game that you guys launched. And I know that this is in many ways, just a sort of, um, a, a proof of concept, but could you tell us a little bit about the game? And, and I think we have a bit of a Tharsis celebrity here, right? Uh, with yeah, with Habsol, yeah, that's that's right. <laughs> you you've uh, you've been murdering people in Tharsis, I I think, right? Well, I'm I'm the first winner of Tharsis. There you go, the very first one, living living forever in the in the in the event log. I want to I want to pretend that I'm a Chad, but what actually happened was I didn't know what I was doing, and everybody else killed everybody else, and I was the only one. There were only two of us left, and I was the only one with any moves left because I didn't know what I was doing. And uh, everybody's like, oh, you can kill that guy if you want to. So um, I did. So you did. I killed so you did. Yeah. Just like real war. Um, yeah. yeah. You exactly. hide real war. and wait for everyone to, to play it, to use all their bullets. It was it. an effective strategy, and I'm mm -hmm. a genius. Mm -hmm. Well, congratulations on your, your victory. Um, I'm, I'm sure that your, your ship has accrued enormous value by, by being the first winner. <laughs> I have to say, like um, uh, somebody, I was getting DMs from people who were like, "Hey, help me out," you know. And I was, uh, I was like, uh, not checking. I wasn't, I wasn't helping anybody out. They were sending me messages. <laughs> we're, we're on your team. Please help. And I was like, no, I'm just gonna wait. I'm just gonna see what happens. Lone wolfing it. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. So uh, I lost. Yeah. I lost friends over Tharsis. Is the point? Yeah, yeah. but you, you got glory. So yeah, so what glory, is right. Tharsis, and and how does it work, and how does it like provide a model for um, distributing software this way in the future? Yeah, so Tharsis is a, uh, I, I think that it's Urbit's first peer-to-peer uh, -peer PVP game. Uh, debatable whether or not poker is a PVP game, but mm -hmm. uh, there's certainly, chess. you know, more direct, con yeah, sure, chess, chess probably qualifies. <laughs> uh, there, there's very direct combat in Tharsis. Uh, it's like an area of control game. There's a board, uh, and you're you're battling to basically murder all of your friends before they murder you. And the goal is to be the, the last man standing. It's based on a game from uh, from a fairly famous studio. They they developed I think Fruit Ninja as well as some other mobile games. Uh, it was conceived of as a board game, and they they played it in their uh, in their offices, and and ultimately had to had to ban the game after about two weeks because people stopped working. Uh, it was ruining <laughs> friendships. Um, they, they were betting on it. They, they discovered actually that there were like enormous spreadsheets. You know, there were double and triple agents uh, sort of infiltrating different groups within the company that, that were planning attacks on, on other players. So it, it got banned. And, and we thought, well, we should definitely bring this to the urban network. 
Um, <laughs> so that's that's what it is. It's a fairly simple uh, like alpha version of it right now. We, we've added some some extra mechanics to make it just a little bit more interesting as a video game. So you can you can paint the pixels uh, of the the tile that you're on. It's kind of like a grid based system. So the the grids are actually um, like pixel editors, and you can you can draw pictures and and taunt your friends. And we're we're selling this as an NFT. Uh, so you can go to Tharsis, T-H-A-R-S-I-S dot Vaporware dot network, and you can mint this. Um, this is just for Urbit uh, users right now. It's restricted to Urbit users with an Ethereum-based Urbit ID rather than the the, uh, the L2 that some users have. Ah, suckers. Um, <laughs> L1. L1 master Yeah. L1, uh, yeah. L2 plebs, not not supported. Um, <laughs> but you buy it and you get a DM from us. And that DM, uh, basically what happens is when you purchase the software, our ship sees that. We, uh, we whitelist you to download the software. And then we DM you instructions for, for downloading and, uh, and playing with it. There's some more automation there, basically, that, that we want to do in the future so that uh, we can sell these NFTs and the software to people that don't have an Urbit already. Uh, that's actually working. It's just not like released publicly yet. But yeah, we're I to my knowledge, I think that we are the first Urbit company to generate revenue from selling Urbit software, and we've done this by monetizing it via an NFT. Yeah, that's awesome, and I think a really cool I don't know first glimpse of what a vaporware software ecosystem could look like. You, you gestured towards my, my next question, which was, what does Vaporware look like beyond the world of Urbit, right? Like Urbit is, is cool, it's, it's interesting, but it, it has its bugs and it's, it's small. And I think that something that a lot of Urbit companies are beginning to reckon with right now is how do you financialize in this ecosystem? So mm -hmm. for, for Vaporware, does it view do people need to be on urbit to use its software it says like you're you're building pathways for um for normies to to be able to buy these nfts what does this look like yeah for yeah this i mean this already exists this is like the like one of the key things that we've done is we've we've created a system where as a normal crypto i mean normal crypto user as a crypto <laughs> user yeah. uh you can you can purchase an nft one of these like vaporware nfts in the background, we spin up a new ship for you. We generate like a redirect login link for you. Uh, we've created like a wallet connect for Urbit. So you can log into your Urbit just via the, um, the wallet that you used to purchase the NFT with. And, and then we dump you into the software. So we're treating Urbit as backend technology. And I think that unless you're a very strange person who has found Urbit prior to its mainstream adoption that likes computers, this is the like this is the way to actually sell Urbit. It's just as new backend technology that enables certain kinds of software experiences. Um, so that's that's where we're headed, uh, is basically being able to onboard any crypto user within say 30 seconds of purchasing an NFT into a live running Urbit that they that they own. Um, and we will like this is effectively live internally already. We'll we'll have it live in a broader capacity in the next couple months. Um, Does it support and... gambling? Like I don't necessarily want to play, but I'd like to put money on Habsol. 
you know, this is <laughs> this was the original idea, uh, and I would love to see this return. Like uh, the original idea for Tharsis was that the state transitions of the game, so like each move that is made. Uh, along with the sort of like image that's generated from all the insane pixel art that people make during the game would get packaged up as an NFT automatically and and sold at the conclusion of the game. Mm-hmm. And then the the winner would get the revenue from that. Um, we We did not have time to build that into this version. I would love to talk to anyone that wants to um, that wants to extend it in that way. but yeah, I, I think gambling, gambling on games like that is definitely a killer use case that we're interested in. And um, my understanding is that Vaporware does not imagine itself as like a a software producer in itself, right? Like the core is this this ecosystem, these mechanisms, like the the infrastructure, rather than developing individual games or or applications. So for people who are interested in this model that you're developing, how do they begin? integrating their projects with vaporware begin to how do you how are you attracting developers to the platforms that you're not having to do all this this work yourself yeah i mean the answer is at this point we're, we're not doing much of that um there are some urban developers that we're talking to about uh monetizing their software via this mechanism um the, the like one of the challenges that we face is just like explaining to people that oh your nft is not just like a like a JPEG of a of a monkey anymore. It can be like running functional software that's networked. Uh, like that is a very big conceptual leap already. And so our our process right now is basically we're building the first versions of the software that we think people will be building in the future. And we're doing that as basically like a an early prototype uh, that will allow us to explain what's going on here. Um, so this is not that much different, by the way, than, than what other NFT companies have done. Like if you look at Manifold, um, their product is like creator deployed uh, smart contracts for NFT collections. But to build out the infrastructure, they, they basically partnered with artists to, to, build, to like build these things in the first place. So we're taking a very similar approach. We're, we're partnering with, um, we're trying to partner with like existing NFT projects, existing creators, existing urban developers, uh, to produce like a, a, a library of use cases that show how, how to actually um, interact with this stuff. What it actually looks like is like you include our, you like download our software under your ship and we have some, some tooling available for you to like package up your, uh, your application or your content. Um, we'll have tooling that lets you sort of mint directly from, from there or like deploy your, your contracts uh, directly from there um, or bring your own. And then, and then you're, you're like selling software now. Um, so we aren't going to be opinionated about what you sell or how you sell it. Uh, we're just going to basically provide the infrastructure to, to make it distributable via urban and via NFTs. And is, are these applications in this software both now and uh, in the future going to be limited to urban and Hoon applications? Or is there going to be a way to write applications in a, a more general language and then port that into urban somehow well you can already do this with just pure front ends right like you can you can just upload like a javascript based front end to urbit and have urbit serve it to you like a dumb web server um, as long as you're not trying to store data on urbit trying to like 
keep track of state on Urbit, that that already works. Um, so one use case that I think, you know, is in the very near term that Vapor will, Vaporware will be able to support is like, uh, like open source HTML5 games. Uh, right now, you can't, you can't really monetize these outside of like itch.io and some of these other ad-based systems. So instead, you could upload just this front end to Urbit. We abstract that away so, so as a developer, you're not thinking about it. Um, then you set up sort of the metadata associated with your, your NFT, decide how you want to monetize it, base cost, Dutch auction, you know, all, all the tools that NFTs have. And then you can sell your, your, um, your game via that channel. Um, so I think, you know, there, there's a sort of broad category of stuff at the limit. I think all the interesting things are going to require, uh, developing some hoon. Um, that's part of why we want to start with our own projects as well as to under, understand like, oh, can we abstract out some of the, the urban stuff for people so they can just use it as a data store? Um, we're not there yet. I don't know what the, the answer to that stuff is, but I think it would be a big miss, uh, if we didn't have some some nice APIs for people that just wanted to build like a game or something, great or assassination um, market, or an assass yeah or assassination <laughs> market. Those those are two go to market strategies: either <laughs> games or assassination markets. Mm -hmm. um, still still doing the research on that one. It's an exciting future. So you said to me before we recorded that with, with Urban as a backend, you can also do what you called stateful nfts which you know sounds like a big interesting word but what does that actually mean like how would you explain that yeah so uh nfts for the most part today are are just static files uh they're images they're videos sometimes people get clever and do things on chain with a little bit of computing but there's not that many projects that do it um like one way of viewing what we've done is we've we've hooked NFTs up, like the off-chain portion of NFTs up to like a full Turing complete backend server. Uh, and, and that means that we can associate sort of a, a, a set of events, a set of accumulating events of history with that NFT. So they, they become dynamic, but more interestingly, they, they become like stateful. Um, so, so the like canonical example that I give here is imagine buying an NFT that represents a untrained Pikachu and this Pikachu lives on your orbit. You spend time interacting with it, maybe through your phone, uh, you're training it, you're battling, you guys go on adventures together. There's like a unique history that is accumulating that's associated with this Pikachu with, with our NFTs, you're able to not just sell the like software and image that defines that Pikachu, but you're able to sell that entire history that entire state of uh of that like digital thing uh so this is pretty unique like there there's not there's not another system there there isn't another system that i'm aware of that that has a statefulness aspect uh and so that that means you know we don't just have fixed static digital goods anymore but we have these like alive growing evolving digital goods that are dependent and, and unique on the the owner um, or the chain of owners that that interact with it. Yeah, it's big. It sounds similar to I'm just thinking about like, I don't know, Diablo 2 or like popular Blizzard games, World of Warcraft. Totally. Where, yeah, you you want to sell not just like a particular character, but you want everything that that character did, all the experience, what level they have, their the particular items that you've acquired. Yeah, it seems huge for gaming. Probably other stuff I just sort of lack imagination. So the gaming stuff just jumps out immediately. 
Yeah, and there's like an artifact. I mean, there, there's the there's the value of the item in itself. Like, oh, my character has uh, like this armor, this sword equipped. But there's also like the historical artifact value of it of, of like, oh, my character was the first one, like was in the first party to defeat the Lich King or something. Um, so you, you can't do that today, right? There's there's no sort of differentiation between um, between characters that's verifiable in that way. And and uh, we think the system pr provides that affordance. So one thing that you said that really excited me and I thought was interesting is the idea that this software distribution model, um, this the free and open source software, the NFT distribution, the ways that um, payments can move downstream from products that are iterated on top of it. All this will drive down development costs to the point that it's possible to imagine a world in which individual um, people or, or communities are able to hire developers the way that you might hire someone to, to build a fence or to um, fix your plumbing, that you can get these sort of bits of bespoke software that are tailored to you and your community's needs. And I, one, I'm, I'm curious about how you think this happens, but I also just want like, this is really exciting and interesting idea to me because I think it speaks a lot to what people who are interested in Web3, there's a lot of talk about, about communities and, and urban and imagining this space as a sort of neighborhood where, where communities build. Um, so I guess my question is how, how does this model, the Vaporware's model lead to this community neighborhood software developer system? Yeah. So, I mean, again, the thing that we're interested in, right, is out competing big technology companies. And that means we have to build software faster, cheaper, uh, and with less people dedicated to any one attempt to like any one um, product attempt. This is, by the way, how web apps beat desktop publishing in the first place, like through the same mechanism. They, they just like client server just did all these things better, um, better and cheaper. So that that is really the motivation behind FOSS is that we, we think that FOSS is not just like a good sort of like philosophical system or ethical system, but it's it's going to allow us to outcompete on a like cost basis. And doing a really good job of that means that we drive down the cost of software so much that very bespoke software becomes possible and that we stop thinking about it as bespoke software. Like it's we're 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 almost 25 years in into the 21st century and and we don't have like family software today. It's fucking crazy. Like something has gone wrong here. Um yeah, in many ways like we my, feel further from it. I mean, for example, absolutely. I used to play, um, there used to be all these kind of like developer created games for Warcraft 3. So you had like Footman yeah. Frenzy, you had Dota. Um, Half-Life had that too, right? Like Team Fortress Classic came from the community. And yep. and then I look at like games today, it's just like, it's it's way more centralized. And in the old days, let's take Dota, for example, you know, I don't know exactly how many developers built it, but it probably was one. And like, how was that developer able to do it? Um, because they didn't, they didn't have to recreate all of the parameters. It was like Warcraft three already existed. It already defined right. most of it. And they just had to fork it slightly, add slightly different 
um, yeah, just basically like tweaking it versus building from scratch. Totally. Like it's, it's a recurring theme in computing that games are almost always the, the like leading edge of this. I, who knows why that is. Um, I'm sure we, we could have a whole separate podcast on that, but you're right. I think that it has gotten worse. Like it's crazy to me that my family and I can't have a photo sharing app that is kind of custom to the requirements that we have. And I don't think that, you know, my neighbors are going to necessarily have the same requirements. It probably looks similar, but our fences might look similar too, but they're not, you know, they're not designed exactly the same way. Like the fact that we do not have this after 70 years of professional software development is insane. Uh, and to get there, I think we basically have to design a system of software development that is much more uh, capital efficient than what we currently have. Like it, it just, there should not be a market failure here, but there is. And I think that the complexity of building and maintaining software, of distributing that software, of modifying that software is, is to blame for this. It, it feels intentional too, honestly. Like it feels like exactly when people, for example, I'll just use Warcraft 3 again. Blizzard used to make money from selling a copy of Warcraft 3, right? But then yeah. they moved into a sort of monthly subscription model um, based off of, and it, that was right around, I don't know, I'm kind of dating myself, but I think it was about 20 years ago when when games in particular moved to that more like SaaS model versus just selling. Like Office mm -hmm. was the first thing I really remember that hitting me hard with. Mm. Um, like that was also like such a surprise that suddenly the my I needed to pay all the time to be able to write anything down. Yeah, that's I, I mean, I, I rage quit Water of Warcraft. I, I stopped playing Blizzard games because of that. I didn't have any money. Yeah. So I couldn't pay five dollars a month, you know, to play Warcraft three. It, uh, it was yeah. a it was a shocking experience for me when I like got my first World of Warcraft CD and loaded it in the computer and I was like, sweet, I'm about to play this game. And then I got hit with like a subscription uh, notice. Like, oh, you also have to subscribe for $30 a month or whatever it was. I'm like, the fuck, didn't I just buy this thing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I wonder if that in particular switched the model. Cause like now pretty much all games work that way. And it seems like games are way more closed off to, um, to basically developers that you can't easily fork a, a game now and make your own version of it right if you if you look at what happened to dota is dota was released and it was the type of game that could be extended and we got like at least league of legends out of it mm -hmm. which has turned into an absolutely massive company so from dota's perspective they could either continue with that business model where all of this value is leaking out to other entities and they're not getting any of it. Like the, I promise you that the original developers of Dota haven't made any money from, uh, from Riot Games, at yeah. least directly. I don't know if they employ them. Um, so you can, you can either continue with that model and lose all this value, or you can move to a, a closed source model where you can charge you know, recurring revenue is really nice. That's part of the reason why all these companies have done it is that it's a very predictable revenue stream. Um, so you can move to that model and, and lock people out of it and at least have a, a way of like predicting your revenue, controlling your revenue, uh, arguing why you're like directly benefiting from the work that is occurring in, 
in the ecosystem. It, it just like, I, I think it literally just makes good business sense. And there is an, al an alternative to capturing some of that value that is spun up from the work that you're doing if you do leave it open to modding and extension. Um, mm. But your, but your we, model sort of like, like turns the incentive on the head, which is that if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, the NFT like yep. will allow the original creator to get some financial benefit from remixing. Is that correct? That's right. That's exactly what we're trying to do. Yep. Um, so we're, we're trying to provide, we, we basically need to provide a stronger incentive to leave the software open. Uh, to welcome modding and extension than what proprietary uh, monetization models can offer. And I think that that's quite doable, actually. I don't think that's going to be that that difficult. And this is sort of reminiscent, uh, Hassel pointed this out to me, of the, the model that Logan discussed in our Zorp episode about, you know, you would have a, communities might have a, have a computer guy or a software guy the way you have a mechanic, right? That then, and that requires, you know, the, what Urbit calls like the thousand year computer or something, right? That it needs, things need to be predictable. They need to stay the same. They need to be able to be maintained on a smaller level for this, for this to happen. And you really require Urbit or something like Urbit in order to, to make this happen just from a complexity level. Yeah, it needs to be very maintainable. Uh, it needs to be portable, uh, and the interface to hardware needs to be um, sort of stable over time, such that you can move it from, like, you can move your your the representation of your computer from one like implementation to another. Um, and I think I think Urbit is like getting very close to all these pieces working. Um, we have a long way to go. I think there's other other ways that you could probably approach the problem too. I, I haven't seen any that are sort of as convincing or as far along as Urbit, but fundamentally I think it comes down to like this this portability, maintainability. Um, and that that is a big like just just that gets you so much more efficiency uh, and development than than what we have today. Um, so I do think that that's required. The the other the other thing that's required is that it has to be peer-to-peer -peer distribution. Like you, you have to be able to basically gossip software out. You, you can't be relying on a single sort of permission special actor to, to actually uh, get the software into the hands of new users. Yeah, then that entity just ends up jacking up fees massively. Like that's Apple. right. Like, yep. Yeah, yep, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, I think like, you know, we, coming back to the physical world, like we, we do have... Like we have curation in the physical world. We go to a hardware store and talk to the person at the, the counter about what, what we should buy for our project and what tools we'll need. And like we will we will always need that in the world of software as well. Um, the difference is that that hardware store doesn't have a monopoly on <laughs> all of the wood in the world uh, and isn't charging you 30% you know, month on month every time you, it like isn't charging you 30% every time you open the, the door to your shed. Um, and, and that's what we have with software. So the cheaper it gets, I think that the less lock in um, these kinds of like intermediary curators will, will have. Yeah. And, and I think um, we wanted to round up this episode by maybe continuing to explore this idea of what are the like further 
analogs between the the digital world and, and the physical world and the way that the continued evolution of of software development and um, computer development towards potentially uh, more local communities might mirror the way that this is happening um, physically as like our communities continue to change there. And so I guess the, the question for you then is what do you feel like software looks like in, in 50 years in these sort of communities that are developing and, and how is that mirrored in the way that we're actually you know, living on the ground. I think that in 50 years, uh, software is going to look as different as like languages look today. Like you, you will not be able to understand Chinese software, not just because it's written in Chinese, but because the, the entire context of the software is radically different than, than where you come from. And I think that today people underestimate the degree to which software like the software that you run is basically a, an ethical, moral, like quasi-religious choice. Uh, to a very large extent, the software that we interact with on a day-to-day basis forms uh, forms the worldview that we have, how how dangerous we think our, our community is, the problems that we think exist, um, the, the opportunities that we think are available for, for us and our families. And... Over the next 50 years, that is going to become a very uh, clear fact to people. And I think that communities will want to engineer their software purposefully to inculcate certain kinds of behaviors and, and cultures. Uh, and we've, we've outsourced all of that today. Uh, not consciously, but it's been outsourced re- regardless. So I think the, the turning that's happening is that people are realizing ha- just how important digital interfaces are to the structure and way that we relate to each other. And they'll, they'll want like full control over that. Uh, and getting full control over that will mean that there's just like an explosion in different perspectives as to what, what these things should look like. And what, what pushes us towards that future? Is it as simple as driving down development costs? What, or is, it, is, is there like a, going to be a, a, a political social movement attached to this? How do we, how do we reach this future that you're describing? I think that all technology is, is political. Maybe that's like trite, but yeah, I mean, I think like even looking at blockchain, right? Like blockchain started off as like just a sort of area of interest for, for nerds and like people that liked monetary policy and now it's turned into a very political issue. I think anything that starts to at scale remap the way that people interact with each other and are allowed to interact with each other necessarily becomes political. I think a really good start is just like making software cheaper so that a kid in his mom's basement can like write a piece of software for him and his friends that that does something new that helps them like relate to each other in a different way. I think longer term, it looks like, you know, reevaluating governance mechanisms and incentives and, and how those things can be represented differently in software to a very large degree. Our government today is digital. Like there's a lot of people moving things around, but it's all tied together increasingly by digital systems. And so I think uh, like once you start to peel back that layer that all this stuff is just computers and software and networking, um, that's like a genie that you can't put back into the bottle. Um, And people will just start picking off little things that are meaningful to them. Well, on that note, Chase, uh, 
thank you so much for joining us. This was a really interesting conversation. I think that not only is the work Vaporware is doing interesting on a technical level, but I think it points towards one possible vision of a future in which software is is more accessible to everyone to better serving the needs of individuals and their communities and it's not just being handed to us from the top down and that's that's really exciting this was super fun um thanks for having me guys i i hope that this was legible to audiences (laughs) people are are curious about this stuff we're you can find us on on ligbell slash vaporware if you're on urbit otherwise we're at vaporware with uh, two underscores on either side on on Twitter, and we'll uh, we'll include all those links in the show notes. So make sure to check there Sweet. if you want to get a hold of us or Chase or just learn more about what Vaporware is doing. So thank you for joining us, and until next time, we'll see you on the Network Age. Thank you for listening. For more Network Age content, you can find us on Twitter at Network Age Pod. We've also got a beautiful new presence online, which you can find at ookbar.network forward slash age. Also, find us on Apple or Spotify, leave us a good review, and we may even read it on air. Until next time, this has been the Network Age.